Until February of 1850, Sonora was known as the Sonorian Camp. Then the name was changed to Stewart, and then to Sonora. The history of Tuolumne County stated that the according to the California Blue Book, the word Tuolumne meant many stone houses or caves, having a similar meaning as the word Shasta in another native tongue. And I love this because Shasta is my sister's name, and that's special. Tuolumne County was a wild and rough country in the gold rush days, and not all of the local history was squeaky clean. The region was full of diversity among the merchants, miners, gamblers, drunkards, and women of leisure. From the research that led up to today's episode, I was thrilled to learn how Sonorians came together in the past to push back against discrimination. During America's largest migration, the gold rush, indentured servitude was one way people secured their passage to California. By their own choice, they would barter their labor for a specific amount of time as collateral with their chosen master. The master paid their way to California and boarded them while they were working for them. Today, I will share two stories of indentured servitude from Sonorian Camp. I found these stories in an old book called Justice in Sonora, and that book's from my grandpa's collection. I'm not sure if I ever mentioned it, but my grandfather was Tuolumne County Sheriff Wally Berry, circa 1980s. This is Queens of the Mines, where we discuss untold stories from the twisted roots of California. I'm Andrea Anderson. It was a hot August day in the gold rush town of Sonora, California, on a crowded main street, which is now known as Washington. Bookstore owner and city council member W.H. Mintzer walked past the tinted hotels and busy saloons that lined the dusty street in 1850. In a sea of people from all over the globe, Mintzner was approaching a crowded cluster of poverty-ridden, brush-covered ramadas when he heard a miserable sound. Mintzner stopped to see if he could make out the noise among the multiple languages murmuring and shouting in the streets. It was the sound of a person groaning. Someone was in trouble, and he knew he had to find them. Minster moved closer to the makeshift homes in the Mexican neighborhood, following the sound of someone in pain. Eventually, he found the tent that the tragic moaning was coming from. Lifting the flap that served as the door, Minster became overwhelmed by a cloud of flies swarming so thick he could hardly see who was inside. As his eyes adjusted, he moved closer. Crouching in the corner was a young Mexican boy without clothes. Esta bien? he asked the boy, who motioned to the other side of the tent. Minster swatted the flies away, revealing another boy lying in the fetal position. The child was about 12 years old, and it was obvious to Minster that he was dying. 
Minster knew that he did not have the supplies or knowledge to help the boy, and in a panic he rushed to the nearby shop of Dr. Marius Chappelle. He yelled to the doctor in a hurry and showed him the way to the tent. When he found the boy, Dr. Chappelle realized he himself was also helpless. The boy was close to death. The two men sat with the boy as he took his last breath and then comforted the other child, who they found out was his brother. Word spread around the town about the two boys as quick as wildfire, and the streets were buzzing with townspeople as they joined forces to search for the responsible party. It was a man named Brian, and he was soon found and put on trial before acting judge, Justice of the Peace, Richard C. Berry. In the early 1850s, Major Richard Berry took on the role as one of the Justice of the Peace of the town, alongside Judge Tuttle and John G. Marvin. Berry was born in Ireland and immigrated to Texas, and this was while Texas was still a province of Mexico, and while he was there, he dedicated himself to the struggle for independence and became a major for the Texas Rangers. Barry had a tender heart for the suffering. There was a trial on August 15, 1850, and Judge Barry confirmed the conditions of the boys were awful. Simply proven that one boy was naked, and the other boy was very sick. The first witness put on the stand was the young surviving boy. He told the judge that his father had given Bryant consent against the wishes of his mother for indenturement. Without shoes, the two brothers walked for 50 days from Mazatlan to San Jose and then to the Plains. Once arriving in Sonora, Bryant just left him and his brother alone. The court then called bookstore owner W.H. Minzner to the stand. Minzner explained how he had discovered the condition of the boys after hearing groaning while walking up Main Street. The Frenchman Dr. Chappelle testified that after the boy's death, he took the surviving boy to his shop, cleaned him up, had his hair cut, gave him clothes and plenty of food. He gave the boy a job washing dishes and he had been staying around the store selling Chappelle's French luxury items. There was no doubt the boy was in good hands. A man named H.G. Mazden corroborated the statements of the two men. A woman who lived in front of the tent where the boy died was called to the stand. She testified that the boys were without clothes. A week before his death, she said the boy did have a sore throat. And one of the boys told her he was sick and the other said he was hungry. She would have helped, but her own condition was equally poor and bare. Next to be sworn in was the countryman, Bien Touster, who was acquainted with the man in charge of the boys. His name was Brian. Touster and Brian had known each other since birth, and the two men had come to California on the same ship. He also told the judge of the possessions the boys had, the sick boy had a pair of white pants and a shirt, which he had worn since leaving Mazatlan, and the younger boy had a hat and a mat. He told Judge Barry that Brian was kind to the boys and treated them as if they were his own. With the assistance of an interpreter, 
Some members of the local Mexican community then testified that the boys were being treated well. Telster also knew the boys' parents in Mazatlan and explained they were brought here in indentured servitude with consent from the boys' parents. A contract was signed to keep the boys, providing food and shelter for them. If Brian did not find any gold during the trip, he was to bring them back home. Two young boys, far from their family and home, dependent on a stranger striking gold. Ben Tauster attended to the brothers every night, he said. He was one of the people that Brian had delegated to take care of the boys. Soon, the older boy had swelling in his throat and could not work. Tauster told Judge Barry he gave the boy sago, a starch extracted from palm stems and rice. He believed the food to be suitable for a sore throat. Tauster did not call for a doctor. Henry Engel, the area's official grave digger, was called to testify. Engel told the court he did not know Brian, but he had seen the sick boy the day before his death in horrific condition. And the following day, two Americans called upon him to tell him the boy was dead and that they wished to bury him. Brian was in Monterey when the boy became sick and there's no statement from him in the court records. When the evidence portion of the trial was concluded, the court ordered Dr. Chappelle to take care of the young boy until a new guardian could be appointed. Brian was taken to the jail and charged $12.50, which is $428 in 2021. For Judge Barry was always alert that cost should be remembered. What was it like for the women in California during the 1850s? What hardships did they face and what victories were they able to realize? Who were the first women who came to California and who was already here? Explore the lives of 10 brilliant people who made their own way in a time where women were not so welcome to do so. Their stories contributed to the shaping of the future of California and the United States. The undermined people were often rendered voiceless, leaving them ghosts of our past, dismissed and forgotten. They're rarely heard of, and I want you to know their names. Queens of the Minds, the paperback novel is available, and I'm booking a winter book release tour. If you or your town would like to host Queens of the Minds, let us know. Find it all on queensoftheminds.com. Now, back to Sonorian Camp. In the spring of 1853, a few years after the discovery of the young Mexican brothers, the majority of the population of Sonora were Chileans who were working in the mines. The Chileans were the first miners in California to start to extract gold from the quartz once the placer gold ran out. Our last quick story for the day is about Sofia, a beautiful Chilean young woman who wanted to get herself to the gold fields in the mother load. So Sophia made a deal back home in Chile. She would travel north to California via an indentured servitude contract with an older couple who lived in the Sonorian camp. 
The arrangement was that Sophia was to repay the cost of her passage to California over time with her labor. For over a year, Sophia worked hard for her masters, yet the balance she owed never seemed to get any smaller. She was accomplishing so little towards her own freedom. Her master was not only taking advantage of her, but he was abusive to her in many ways. Sophia did not know how to get out of the trap she was in and continued to do the couple's chores. One chore that Sophia did find rather pleasant was going with her mistress to the Mexican tienda, or shop, on Main Street. A young, handsome Chilean man helped her on this shop, and Sophia found herself thinking about him often. Sophia began an eye-to-eye courtship with the handsome man that she often saw at the shop. A susceptible young man in the country does not keep his eyes on the ground, and even a girl with her eyes lowered is not blind. They found a way to communicate directly with each other, and it was quickly decided. They were in love, and they would be married. One night, he snuck her out of the older couple's home. He was devastated to find that she had been beaten and bruised, and that her life at her home had been utterly miserable. Her master immediately noticed she was missing, and suspected the young man from the shop. He stormed into the sheriff's office and reported the crime. He went to the casa with the support of a constable and violently hauled Sophia back to his house. The young Chilean man was in a rage and turned to his American friends who eagerly briefed him on the American ideas of liberty and justice. So he went and made a complaint himself. The young man had made it clear to the judge that he wanted to marry Sophia. Now, Justice Jenkins was not a slave to legal patterns, nor would he let a young woman be maltreated. Judge Jenkins then issued a subpoena for Sophia's immediate presence in court, and the town gathered in support. To everyone's annoyance, the wrinkled old man who kept her appeared instead and insisted that he was her compadre, He told the judge that he had jurisdiction over her, and this was a distasteful idea to the Americans who were swarming the courtroom. A constable with a more forcible order was sent to fetch Sophia. When Sophia arrived, Justice Jenkins performed the marriage ceremony right there and then, and the whole town celebrated with the outcome, and they wished the young couple well. Their next step was to sue for back wages, which they considered due to Sophia. Lewis C. Gunn displayed his pleasure in the story with a happy ending in his May 7, 1853 edition of the Sonora Herald. Lastly, I'm going to read you a poem taken from the early history of Tuolumne County, California. Oh, the California counties are scattered far and wide. Some lie by snow-crowned summits, some kiss the ebbing tide. Some sleep in sunny valleys, some house the fir and pine. But take them all in all, I say, Tuolumne for mine. Some count the lore of acres, 
lush with harvest gold. Some claim the seas, some count the breeze, the finest charm they hold. But let them hoist fame's banner to reach perfection's test. Right here today, I want to say to Wallamies the best. Nowhere you'll find finer the touch of grandeur's might. Nowhere the days are brighter, no fairer dreams the night. And nowhere else upon the earth the trees are quite so fine. You take your choice, but hear my voice. Tuolumne is mine. All right. I love you all. Be safe. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask. Stay positive and act kind. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Subscribe to the show so we can meet again weekly on Queens of the Minds. Queens of the Minds is a product of the Eureka Podcast Network and was written, produced, and narrated by me, Andrea Anderson. Go to queensoftheminds.com for the book and more. And if you want to donate to the production of Queens of the Minds, you can on Venmo at Queens of the Minds.